Welcome to another edition of A Random Walk. We're here tonight with uh, Alana Odoms-Herbert, one of my friends from a couple of years ago, to talk about criminal justice reform and a potential move to defund police uh, officers. And honored to have her here. She has a, a fantastic background. Some of you have read her bio um, on the, on the pre-read. And, you know, want to have a wide-ranging conversation. Uh, she and I have talked about some of the racial challenges our country's had over the past month or two. We both belong to a, a President of Leadership Scholars group that's had a lot of great conversations on race and the implications of policing on different parts of our society. So Alana, thank you so much for being here and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here too. Thanks so much for inviting me. Of course. Well, before we get into the, the last couple of months and specific policies, you know, you have such a, a fascinating background. What drove you to get to the position you're at right now leading the ACLU in Louisiana? Yeah. So uh, I'd like to start out by saying that I come to this conversation from a pretty unique perspective. I started out as a prosecutor in New Orleans uh, in 2008, and uh, it was really, you know, right after Hurricane Katrina, uh, the height of, of crime in New Orleans, uh, and also a time, uh, I think, of dramatic um, reimagining what the city would look like. And I, I very naively, I think, thought that being um, on the side of law enforcement would be the best way for me to bring a social justice mindset to prosecution and uh, to be able to um, think about things like sentencing uh, in a more fair way, a more just way, to think about the way that uh, crime was being prosecuted in a more fair way. And what I learned quickly was that uh, while the system seems to be set up um, on objective terms, uh, it is anything but objective. It is uh, the criminal legal system in particular um, is a system that really targets, specifically targets black and brown uh, community members and criminalizes behaviors that really emanate from a few common causes, uh, one being poverty, uh, two being substance abuse, and three being mental health disability. And so what I saw was um, largely uh, black, and brown, black and brown communities being over-policed, uh, targeted, and uh, harassed. Um, you know, lots of violence being exacted uh, on people and communities of color, especially on young people, and saw lots of arrests, lots of people going to jail and to prison for relatively minor offenses like drug possession, which is the most common crime that people are incarcerated for in Louisiana, uh, both on the pretrial incarceration side and on post-conviction, and not a lot of safety coming out of that. And so um, I was in private practice for some time, did some Section 1983 work in my private practice, and then uh, ended up going to the Louisiana Supreme Court to serve as the deputy general counsel there and policy counsel to the chief justice, working specifically on mass incarceration policy uh, and juvenile justice criminal policy. And in, in that role, um, I served the first African-American chief justice in the court's 200-year history, and she had really set forth um, a, a challenge to the state, uh, both to the legislature and to, uh, to the courts, to reduce mass incarceration. And so we, uh, along with 35 other states at the time, went through a process called justice reinvestment. And this is a really important model uh, for this conversation because justice reinvestment essentially, um, uh, it's, a, it's a process that you go through. It's an analytical process, data-driven process that um, the Pew Charitable Trust participates in. But essentially, they help you study the drivers of incarceration in your state. And we went through a two-year process that did that. And, and essentially, what we learned is that we were largely incarcerating people. Uh, most often for low-level nonviolent offenses like theft, uh, like drug possession, like I mentioned, uh, and many other broken windows type policing offenses. Uh, and we were spending about $700 million a year of our budget doing that. Uh, but we were seeing still very high crime rates, and we were also seeing people who had been in prison returning to prison um, within three years of incarceration, so very high recidivism rates. And so for the business folks on this line, you know, 
if you were operating a business uh, and that you had those kinds of returns, you would essentially be out of business. And of course, you know, state budgets have been experiencing contraction over the years. And now with COVID, that certainly we're going to be looking at that more. And so essentially what we decided to do was basically stop incarcerating people uh, at such high levels and spending such uh, significant taxpayer dollars on doing that. And what we did was, you know, look at the top 10 crimes that people were incarcerated for, drug possession being number one, but all of the top 10 crimes being low level and nonviolent, reducing the sentences for those offenses, uh, attempting to decriminalize some of those offenses like drug possession, and then realizing that you could save tens of millions of dollars by simply not incarcerating people, but by also coming up with um, non-alternative, I'm sorry, alternatives to incarceration that would better help support people in community. And so the first year, we, we, we passed a, a package of, of legislative reforms, uh, 10, 10 pieces of legislation that ha have overall reduced the state's incarceration population by about 10%. In the first year, we saved about $12 million uh, by doing this. And in the second year, $26 million by doing this. And those funds, importantly, were reinvested, are being reinvested back into life-affirming community services that we know help support people who are poor, who have substance and mental health um, challenges. And those are the kinds of things that, you know, essentially we're talking about with this larger conversation about defunding the police. Mm -hmm. And I think people get really um, concerned and, and afraid about, you know, a radical concept about defunding or divesting from police. But I think the justice reinvestment model, which has largely been incredibly successful over the country, provides a really beautiful analog to it. And that essentially we're saying there's an over-reliance on policing. There's an over-investment in policing, which has created bloated police budgets. And essentially we're asking police to solve a host of problems that should be solved with other systems in our society. And in order to do that, in order to prioritize community-based solutions, and also to prioritize structural reform. So we're not just talking about social services. I don't want to get that confused. We're actually talking about divesting, but also reinvesting. And so that's a very, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a successful model. And it's something that we can obviously, of course, talk about further in terms of the conversation about police. Well, thanks for that great overview. There's so many fascinating avenues to explore. Um, I want to go back to where you started being a prosecutor. You know, not many folks have been able to be a prosecutor. So what did you see I don't know, for the couple of years or however long you spent there that started to shift your mindset? You mentioned a couple of very high level things. What specifically did you see that kind of made you realize a different path might be suitable for you? Yeah, so I spent uh, a year and three months uh, in okay. the prosecutor's office, and I realized that, um, you know, the relationship be between the district attorney and assistant district attorneys and police officers is a very, very cozy relationship. Mm. So that is a very telling fact for people to understand why criminal prosecution is so difficult in the context of uh, district attorneys and police, because it's really a hand-in-glove relationship. And we had uh, many instances where we knew police officers had committed misconduct, had committed violence against community members, had, uh, had lied in, in uh, previous cases. But unfortunately, we were not able to um, prevent those police officers from continuing to make arrests, from continuing to be um, called as witnesses in our cases. And in many cases, you know, you, you just feel very hamstrung. You, you know that the state the assistant district attorney, the district attorney is the most powerful player in the criminal justice system. The district attorney is also one of the most uh, unchecked powers in the criminal uh, justice system and, and, and as our police. And so to hold this inordinate amount of power to be able to bring cases against people, decide what, what charges should be brought against folks to increase or enhance those charges and even enhance penalties based upon your whim and discretion. And when you know those things are not being done necessarily from a place of good faith, and you know in many instances those, those decisions are racially motivated, that becomes very difficult. And as a woman of color, as a black woman, you know, when I stand in front of a jury and I'm asking a jury to hold uh, a citizen, a, a member of our community accountable, 
And I'm looking at a jury that is a, a diverse jury. And in New Orleans, that's one of the beauties of our community. We do have diverse juries. But there's a certain amount of trust and credibility that a black woman, uh, that a person of color has with juries, um, especially diverse juries. And I really felt like it was a dereliction of my duty uh, to be bringing some of the cases that we brought. We were largely targeting um, um, marijuana usage. Uh, and lots of those cases were um, cases where young uh, African-American men and women were being um, charged and prosecuted as what is called multiple offenders. I don't use the language offenders. That's actually the, the, the colloquial language that's used for, among prosecutors and defense attorneys. It's actually called the habitual offender statute in the statutes. Uh, but lots of folks being charged as second and third time offenders for marijuana possession and spending 20, 30, 40 years in prison for an offense like that when we know um, most folks on the phone uh, and, and in, our, in our communities like to use uh, drugs of their choice and do so with relative ease and, and, um, and, and no interaction with law enforcement at all. And many members of the district attorney's office as well um, also used uh, drugs of choice and, and you know, flagrantly broke the law, but that was, you know, it, it was essentially just a double standard. And so, you know, realizing that, you know, I have a greater responsibility, number one, as a lawyer, but also as a, as a woman of color in this system, I just couldn't square and reconcile a lot of those, um, those issues. And so, you know, really realized that I should probably be examining the system, not necessarily from within, but from without. Yeah, that's fair enough. So you mentioned the cozy relationship between the DA and the law enforcement. I know some of the work y'all have done in Louisiana has been identifying, let's just call them the privileges that the police have in terms of time to, to testify and other things. Can you give us the, the lay of the land in Louisiana for a police officer who may have, you know, had some misconduct or some, um, something that come up in his record, his or her record, that they, they get that might be different than the public? Yeah, so I'll just state at the outset, you know, I'm not an expert on policing, uh, and I think there are, you know, many folks who have studied these issues in a lot more depth than I have, but what I can tell you from my experience, um, both as a prosecutor and also working in uh, the civil rights space for the last uh, two years, is that we see that police officers, so first and foremost in Louisiana, we have the largest ratio of police uh, to citizens uh, in the nation. What is that ratio? Yeah. Uh, do you have the numbers? You know, I don't actually have the number uh, right oh, on fine. hand, but I do think, I think we have them on our uh, Justice Lab fact sheet. And that's so right. I can, yep. we can give those to the, to the folks. Yeah, so what I was saying is that police killings are incredibly prevalent, not just in the, in the state of Louisiana, but across the country. Mm -hmm. And African-American people making up about 28% of those killings, um, despite the fact that they make up only 13% of the U.S. population. Police have already killed uh, 598 people uh, in this year alone. And if we look back to 2019, we see that there were only 27 days in the entire calendar in 2019 where police did not kill someone. Um, obviously, Black people are most likely to be killed by police. Um, they're more than three times as likely as their white counterparts to be killed by police. And these uh, figures are police killings per 1 million uh, people. Um, they're also 1.3 times more likely to be unarmed compared to their white counterparts. Um, the other thing that's pretty interesting about this national data is that where you live matters. And so your likelihood to be killed by police is six times greater if you live in Oklahoma than if you live in Georgia. Uh, but as you know, there are um, uh, there is recently the, the killing of uh, uh, a young uh, a young black man in in Georgia uh, that, uh, you know, kind of essentially lets you know that even despite these disparities with where you live, we know that police killings are happening in every city, uh, in every, uh, around this. Um, eight of the, of the 100 largest city police departments kill black men at higher rates than the U.S. murder rate. And um, you won't be too lucky to be in any of these cities, but Reno is one, Oklahoma City, Santa Ana, Anaheim, uh, St. Louis, Scottsdale, Madison, Wisconsin, Las Vegas, Spokane, Washington, Orlando. Um, and, and 
uh, the also the thing that we see is that there's no accountability, absolutely no accountability for these police killings uh, of, of the killings uh, nationally of, of, of black people between the years of 2013 and 2019, 99% of those killings resulted in no officers being charged criminally. So that gets us to the, to the issue of uh, qualified immunity, but it also gets us to some other legal precedent and policies that really insulate police officers from liability. And in Louisiana, one of those um, ways that police officers are insulated from liabilities is that they have a, a buffer. Um, they are entitled to two weeks uh, of, of privacy, essentially, to concoct whatever story uh, or to uh, come up with whatever, uh, you know, favorable set of facts that they want to before they must, uh, you know, give an accounting of, 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 an, of, of a situation that involves the death of an individual. Um, and so we see that that where individuals, uh, lay citizens, have to account for their conduct and behavior immediately, we know that police officers are just not held to that same standard. And so there are many, many reasons why we see, I think, I believe we see the kind of, of flagrant violence and, um, and harm being perpetrated on communities of color. And one is the you know, complete lack of accountability but also the fact that there are many aspects of uh, our law and policy that are essentially built to protect and shield uh, police officers uh, from very basic, um, I think, fundamental values that our society holds dear, which is truth, candor, and you know, holding folks accountable for, for serious misconduct. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, you know, the prevalence of police killings throughout the country, and you're probably familiar with this. There was a pretty provocative study published in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences in 2019 um, by a, a professor from Michigan State and Maryland that when they controlled for, you know, overall violent crime rates, um, they found that there was no, uh, you know, bias, in, there was no prediction, predictable value in terms of the, the race of the victim or the race of the police officer, which, you know, some people have said actually indicates that there's not a problem you know, there, there's more crime happening in African American communities for whatever reason, whether it's poverty or whatever. And so when a police, when police officers kill someone, it's not racially motivated. It just happens to be because of the type of environment they're in. How do you think about studies like that? And how would you respond given your background on what you seem, what, what you understand about the, the police violence situation? Yeah, I, I think that really speaks to um, some of the myths that we are seeing when it comes to um, discussions about police violence. Um, we see police killings really uh, be um, independent of whether or not they're, you know, the levels of crime in community. And we also see, as we talked about, extreme racial disparity on who's killed and whether or not folks are held accountable for those killings. And so to suggest that um, police killings are not racially motivated uh, I think is is really problematic, but I think it's actually much deeper than the issue of just looking at police killings alone. Mm -hmm. I think what we have to do is look at the deeper political issues that are uh, that have created this basically state of mass policing in our our country and look at the origins of that system and how, you know, those policies were really driven by, you know, very racist ideas and and very problematic ideas about the over, you know, the dangerousness of black people, especially the dangerousness of, of black men, uh, the criminalizing of, of conduct, essentially, of, of, of poor people and, uh, and people who, as I said, have mental health disability and who, have, um, who, are, who are experiencing things like homelessness, um, you know, really the criminalizing of, our, our, of black children in schools and the idea that you need um, police officers to, you know, to, to control children in school settings. These are all things that we have decided as a nation are politically feasible and appropriate for communities of color, but they would never be acceptable for white communities, wealthy communities, well-heeled communities. Largely, well, white communities uh, and wealthy communities um, exist completely outside the context of police. You know, there are not police officers on every corner, and that is that is largely because people have 
uh, very, very good jobs. They have access to the mental health care that they need. They have privacy and security and all of the things that we know essentially create um, successful, viable lives. And so I think the thing that we really need to look at is, of course, we need to look at police violence. And this is there's an epidemic, maybe even an endemic of police violence in the in this country. But we also have to look at the racist policies that have created the structural inequality in our society. So we have to look at why we have politically decided it's okay for black and brown children to be in failing schools. We have to look at the reasons why those schools are underfunded or defunded. Uh, we have to look at the reasons why we've not invested in a healthcare system that produces um, you know, outcomes that are um, equal for, for, for all races. Uh, we have to look at those systems. And if we don't look at those systems, if we continue to fail to look at those systems, and we continue to invest and overinvest in policing and not pay attention to those things, those are, those are really you know, political decisions. And I think the beauty of this moment is that we're coming to a place where we're recognizing that formerly, like, you know, our race neutral conceptions of, of political policy and also of, of, of structural inequality as we've been speaking about them are really failing in these moments where we've never been a race neutral uh, country. We've always had race based solutions, privileges that have flow, have, have inured to the benefit of folks who identify as white and majority in this country. And conversely, policies that have disparately impacted people of color. And so I think policing obviously is a very good, uh, is, an, is an example of the harms of a system like that. And I think we have to, when we think about looking at reforms, um, the reason why folks are saying that reforms are not sufficient is because we know that taking a, an institution that was designed for racial control and was designed essentially to hold newly freed uh, black folks um, in systems of oppression after being emancipated from, from slavery, if those are the origins of our policing system and they've just continued to evolve in these different ways, implicit bias training will not cure explicit racism in a system. It just, it doesn't work. Um, additional body cameras don't seek to, you know, don't, don't change that, uh, you know, analysis either. Um, many of the reforms, as we know, that were in place in Minneapolis, um, they were held up as a model police department, and yet we still see and saw the death of George Floyd. And so we just know that there's a really, um, there's structural change that has to occur here. And looking at police and the role that they play in public safety or the lack thereof is a really important part of that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think you raised a great point is, you know, the whole focus on policing and reform there is, is almost, it's, it's almost a symptom of a, of a greater problem. And I think, you know, as I've understood the defund the policeman, I'd love to like maybe move into that so we can kind of flesh that out what that actually means. Because as you mentioned, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, rhetoric floating around of what, what people might interpret that means. You know, at, at the core, my understanding is, you know, take money from law enforcement and reinvest it in communities to help alleviate these things. Um, from your perspective, as you hear the term defund police, what specifically do you mean by that? And what are the things you're trying to drive both on, you know, maybe reducing explicit dollars to law enforcement and increasing dollars elsewhere or implementing those policies? Yeah. So let's just like let's look at some um, some budget figures and kind of just have a conversation about the size and scale of police budgets because I, I think that's a really instructive way to understand the scope of the problem. Um, nationwide, about a hundred billion dollars goes to policing. Um, if we look at a city like New York City, six billion dollars of that goes to the NYPD. Six billion dollars is uh, larger than the GDP of 50 countries uh, worldwide and also larger than the budget of the World Health Organization. Um, take for example Chicago, um, the policing budget is 1.7 billion dollars and that's on average about five million dollars, a little bit less than five million dollars a day on policing. Um, and in Minneapolis in particular, whereas the police budget was about $193 million a year, 
uh, community support, uh, community support programs, um, life-affirming services programs received about $250,000 a year. And so, you know, there is such a disparity there in terms of, you know, even looking back to the analogy that I gave with the, you know, funding for law, law enforcement and incarceration in Louisiana. And we, you know, we largely see that we're making these incredible investments in uh, the in our police departments, and yet, really, the return on the investment that we're getting is incredibly poor. We're not seeing. I mean, I think this is kind of like the best kept secret. But you know, police are are not traditionally uh, responsible for interrupting crime. Um, lots of what they do has to do with proactive patrols and really, you know, um, them trying to intercept or predict crime and largely that kind of takes the the role of of over policing in communities of color and really looking to criminalize behaviors that are not traditionally criminalized in other communities and so i i like to i've, I've done a little bit of reading and one of the books i would suggest folks uh, take a look at is the end of policing and it's written uh, by a professor of sociology at brooklyn college and you know he really argues that essentially what we're what we've done is we've asked our po police departments to solve you know a host of social problems um that really are are and should be you know really you know solved in community rather than being solved by the police and and what essentially has happened is you know a set of specific economic and political priorities that really started with the administration of nixon where we weaponized crime fighting as a tool for gaining political votes. And, you know, this was in the wake of the civil rights movement. And really what happened there was uh, basically toxic racial dog whistling, where we, you know, really looked at certain behaviors like homelessness, mental health illness, um, uh, sex work and other things as these, as these criminal activities that needed to be controlled by the police. And really, you know, now what we've seen is that, you know, we know that police are not the best people to be responding to the homelessness crisis. You know, we know police are not the best people to be responding to untreated mental health illness. And we know that we have no mental health uh, care infrastructure in this country. And that is a political decision. That's something that was, you know, has been the decision of our elected officials and politicians to failed to invest in mental health infrastructure and health care, and that's resulted in mass uh, mental health crises in our community. We know that the police are not really the best people designed to solve those. And so, you know, really what we're saying is that we've had our priorities wrong, and to the extent that a budget is a moral document, and to the extent that we have some real decisions to make on how we are going to create equity in communities of color and of course as a as a function of that stop allowing black and brown bodies to be killed by the police we've got to invest in those services but not just social services we've also got to invest in the infrastructure that we know keeps people safe and stable and that includes building affordable housing and includes putting young people to work in stable employment. And it also includes creating mental health infrastructure like we've discussed. Um, we know, you know, police are just not the best people to, you know, answer um, and to, to be deployed in, in situations of conflict, harm, and crisis response. And we know that there are very trained uh, and, and really resourceful members of the community that can do that. It's just really hard for folks to think about a time where we didn't over-rely on the police. And that's because there never has been a time. But I think the place that we're in now is we have to do some really deep um, reimagining of what the what the role of policing should be and can be in our society and consequently consequently also what role community will have in determining what that role should be so you, you touched on kind of a, a general philosophy of what law enforcement should do but if you were to like succinctly summarize like a first principle view of the role of law enforcement in, in our society how would you how would you consider putting that forward yeah, so, you know, I think about the 21st century policing task force 
and President Obama. And I think about this idea of police being uh, guardians rather than warriors. And there's, and, and I actually, there was so much attraction that I had to that idea for a very long time. And I will say that the reason that that notion, that very romantic idea has kind of, you know, fallen out of my favor is because we know that um, in many instances, even in, in, you know, pilot cases like in Camden, where, you know, they've, they've got these really lovely buzzwords and community policing and and they've got, you know, they've got Guardian Police Task Force and all these folks that are, you know, saying the right things. Largely what they're doing is just um, essentially a, a broken windows kind of policing that seeks to criminalize very minor conduct and really still continues to target black and brown communities. And so I, I really believe that we've got to kind of get rid of a lot of the mythology that we have about policing. It's not that all police are bad. It's not that I, I, I think that there is, there will be a time in the near future where we don't have police. I think this is a very, very gradual process, this um, reordering of political priorities that has to take place in our country. But what I do believe is that when I think of the safest place uh, that I want to live and be in, police are not at the center of that of that vision. And I think for well-heeled communities around this country, they feel the same way. And I think people of color want that same safety and security and peace. And what we know is that police are not the people to bring safety, security, and peace. They just haven't been that for black and brown communities. And it is very unlikely that in the current structure they ever will be. And so my vision is and maybe I'll take a little bit of a, of a hint from my daughter. We did a, a children's march for racial justice a few weeks ago, and we had the young people draw out um, their vision, their vision of a safe society, their safest place. And not one of those children drew a police department or drew um, a militarized police vehicle or drew anything like that. And so I think that's what we really, I mean, in many ways, we're getting back to our five-year-old selves or we're getting back to a very basic understanding of there are many ways that we can keep one another safe as community members. There are many trained professionals in our society that can help create safety. Um, there very well may be a place for folks, especially in law enforcement, to address certain types of, of crisis and certain types of violence and harm, but that's likely a very, very small subset of the issues that they currently deal with. And, and frankly, I really think that we are going to have to, you know, have, you know, really kind of put on a new model of thinking about what liberation actually means for black and brown communities, which is a very difficult thing. And we're going to have to, you know, I don't have a crystal ball for what it what it will look like. I mean, and I think I would just be lying to say that I did, but I do know that policing and the role of police in public safety would be dramatically, dramatically curtailed. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Camden as a you know an example folks have put forward, and you I think highlighted some of the challenges of that maybe they haven't had as many reforms as as they would have liked to have seen. Looking you know even globally or in our own nation. Are there examples of other places where police have taken a step back and um, a better outcome has emerged? And I, you know, I come from a place where I see examples and you look at, you know, the chop up in, in Seattle, which may not be a great example, but it's an instance where the police truly removed themselves and within a couple of weeks it collapsed. You look at places like Mexico where the federal government and the local law enforcement have basically been overrun by cartels. Um, and not to say that would happen, but, you know, one of the key concerns from skeptics of, of you know, defunding the police is there is a concern that, that crime may increase. And you're probably familiar with studies around the Ferguson effect, where after the, the, the truly tragic events of Ferguson and the, the unveiling of a truly racist police department, that there was a step back by the police and crime rates increased. And this has actually uh, occurred in multiple instances. 
So maybe give us the flip side. Are there examples where the police have taken a step back, crime has been reduced, and people have been able to engage in this more holistic community that, that I think is an aspiration for both of us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll just take, um, I'll take a second to talk about Camden and um, one of the critiques, the major critiques there, which is while we did see a dramatic reduction in um, the size and scope of policing in Camden, New Jersey, we also saw the implementation of a mass system of surveillance mm -hmm. uh, that continues to be, you know, to dramatically impact communities of color and also aid in this deployment of a broken windows kind of policing um, strategy and tactic, which we know is just incredibly harmful um, to all members of the community. And so I think that, you know, Camden was first lauded for reductions in crime, so a, re a dramatic reduction in police force and then dramatic reductions in crime. And so folks thought that that was a, a really good model. I, I think that we have to be really careful when we talk about looking specifically at crime rates and in the ways that we look at police presence to crime rates, or even when we look at um, criminal justice reform and its effect on crime rates. Largely, the trend in the United States, especially since the 90s, is a dramatic decrease in overall crime. Absolutely. And, and so it's sometimes really misleading when folks look at a one particular reform or one particular movement and for reform and then look at either a, a decreasing or increasing um, response uh, in terms of, of crime rates going either up or down. And so I think that's it's important to understand that the trend, especially the trend on violent crime, has you know is significantly dropping, and it's it's dropping over time, and that has been that has been the steady trend. Um, I also think we have to again, if you just talk about eliminating the police, and if you are looking at this in a vacuum, and you are not thinking at the same time about you know, the building of infrastructure in the areas that we've spoken about, I think you're going to see that an unstable community with the presence of police will also be an unstable community in the absence of police. And so I, it's very hard for folks, I think, to, to think about how long it will take to stabilize communities because the dramatic and precipitous defunding of black lives in community has been over decades and decades and decades. And so if we are suggesting that we're just going to eliminate the police, but we're not going to do the corresponding reinvestment and not realizing that that investment actually has to take place over a significant and sustained period of time, mm -hmm. then I think that, you know, that's, that can be incredibly problematic. And I also think folks know that largely the decision around police budgets and, and the control of the police will happen at a local level. So we're going to start to see places like Minneapolis and Los Angeles and Atlanta, and New Orleans, making different decisions at the local level around budgeting and hopefully also bringing in folks to do racial impact analysis, to do community impact analysis, to make sure that we're not just pulling out a critical piece of the puzzle and then just leaving the rest of the system to, to, to market regulate. You know, we've got to actually really study what we're doing and we're not just set, you know, there's no set of circumstances that will be, you know, by next week, next month, next year, that all policing, you know, will be completely eliminated as we know it. That's just, that's, that's not going to happen. This is going to be something that's going to have to be measured and will take place over time, but we also have to make sure, again, that we're actually thinking about stable structures and how we create those structures. And, and those structures are the things that actually decrease crime, not whether or not we have more police. And so we have to keep those um, pieces commingled, and we have to make sure that we are as invested in making sure that we divest from the police as we are in looking at structural inequality and funding there. Yeah. So it sounds like, and I think this is probably, this is a good distillation. 
you know, the, the long investments always take time. And, you know, the long-term benefit might outweigh the short-term costs. But as you know, being in the political system, you know, short-term costs weigh heavily on people's minds as they go to the voting booth, regardless of your sure. background or ideology. And so how do, you, how do you make the case, and I think we're getting some real-world examples in these cities you mentioned, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. Um, let's, let's just take that, you know, an African-American mom in the heart of Minneapolis let's just say hypothetically crime increases, but there's this in, over the next year, but there's a belief that 10 years, at what point would you say that actually the short-term costs do outweigh the long-term benefits? Like, is there an increase in crime? Is there an increase in impact to those communities? How do you think about those trade-offs and actually assessing whether or not your hypothesis is accurate? And I, th I hope this hypothesis is right, but I like to look at the other side and maybe it won't be. What are those benchmarks that you would look to to see, you know, maybe we should th rethink this, this, this theory? Yeah, so I, I do appreciate the question and I, I really, I, I don't want to in any way evade the question. What I do think though is really fundamentally important is that even when we say this notion of like, if crime increases, mm -hmm. what are we actually saying when we're talking about crime increases? So yes, we, clearly there can be a conversation about whether there are more violent offenses where people are committing crimes where there are victims and people are experiencing physical harm. But largely what our system does is actually has nothing, is a very, very, very small part of our system that deals with victims and serious violent crime. And the large bulk of the system actually deals with things that are, we've deemed to be crimes, but are in fact things that in private communities, in wealthy communities, in well-heeled communities, most of these things are really either handled within families, within mental health systems, mm -hmm. um, or in private spaces and settings that are completely walled off from the criminal legal system. So I really, I want to push back a little bit on this idea of like, if crime increases, and really talk about why we have defined certain things as crimes to begin with. Why, for example, African American people are incarcerated at three times the rate of their white counterparts for marijuana possession. And that continues to be the case, even with a thriving economy, uh, uh, with, with marijuana a sale and production going on all across our country. And the federal government also seeking in some ways to continue to prosecute marijuana and other drug possession. You know, why we are criminalizing folks who, uh, who have pursued and who engage, you know, women in particular who, have, who engage in sex work. And, you know, those things being considered crimes, that was largely, you know, my entire docket when I was a prosecutor, at least a junior prosecutor, for a year and a half was, it was then called prostitution, but prostitution cases and marijuana. Those are the kinds of offenses that are largely driving the crime in our communities. And so I really do think that we've got to really be thinking about, when we think about the short-term costs, the costs are so great to communities of color in terms of the ways that these crimes and their prosecution destabilize our lives and prevent our upward mobility, prevent our safety, and prevent our children from experiencing the lives that we want them to have, and largely do not impact other communities. Mm -hmm. And so the short term, I think, uh, the, the way that I am seeing this is that we as, as, as an entire community have to realize and have to start holding accountable a system that will largely target only a distinct group, a marginalized group of, of community members and continue to place them in positions where their lives are at risk and they are not able to take care of themselves and their families. Um, I do think, you know, you'll always have people who are going to not do the right thing. And I think in those cases, you know, you are going to have to think about, you know, and we do need to think about how we're going to start having a real conversation about crimes of violence and how we can make people whole. But on, uh, on the large scale, when you look at the system, most of the things that we, we deem to be crimes are really not very criminal. And, and for many members of society who identify as white, they've been able to, you know, largely avoid any interaction with our criminal legal system for all of that same conduct. So it's, it's very difficult for me to give you a very direct answer because I kind of take issue with the basic premise. 
Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And I think you're, you're right to point out that the distribution of crime at large is heavily biased towards nonviolent crime, to your point. Um, and, you know, we don't have to rejudicate the question. I think my, my specific would be if violent crime were to increase, murders, rapes, robberies, we can get into that. But what strikes me about, you know, a lot of the threads that you've pulled tonight is they're very similar, and we've had this conversation before, to what libertarians advocate for as well. Police reform, you know, reduce police violence, get rid of, um, you know, nonviolent crime, particularly marijuana offenses, which drive incredible incarceration rates, even sex workers. And, you know, one of the challenges I've faced in the, in the current conversation is, you know, I'm actually very sympathetic to a lot of police reform. And this comes from my libertarian sense. Um, but when we talk about things, you know, when we say black lives matter, we know that the black lives do matter because they've been forgotten in the past. But when people rejoin, come back and say, well, all lives matter or white lives matter, or Hispanic lives matter. I wonder where the coalition building could occur, where it's true that 250 black men lost their or black men and women lost their lives to police forces. But so too did 500 white men and women last year to police. So as you think about the narrative and the language that's used and, you know, police reform should take a huge coalition to do it. And I think there are members of all races. And, but I find myself somewhat turned off and wanting to engage because of, well, you're forgetting about these 500 other people who may have died as well. And I want to be part of your coalition, but the language just like, I want to make sure we're unified here. How do you think about building those coalitions and acknowledging the, the, the distinct and unique plight of black and brown people in America, while also bringing in other folks who are deeply impacted by maybe policing that could be reformed as well? Sure. Yeah, thank you for that question, and I appreciate it. And so one thing I'll say is that um, I do think that one of the really beautiful things about the incredible tragedy of the coronavirus pandemic is that we have seen solidarity among uh, groups that traditionally do not see themselves in solidarity with one another, because I think a corona laid bare some structural inequality in our um, economic system that really made folks realize that they're even though they feel like they're li living middle class lives they are likely just one two paychecks away from poverty and you know lots of folks started to really long to and what i'll say is that i think there's a, a lot of work for folks who identify as white americans uh oh i think i'm my internet's stopping. Can you hear me still? I can hear you, yep, you're good. Oh, good, perfect. I got a message that the internet is unstable. <laughs> um, I, I think there's work to be done. I have to be very honest and say, I want to encourage folks who identify as white Americans to do some deep um, reflection and also some, some reading and research on why it is that you feel um, so threatened and so offended by this um, concept of Black Lives Mattering and why it's so un uncomfortable for folks to center, center Black Lives. I, I do think it has a lot, and I'll be very frank with you, and this is not, you know, to call folks out, as I, as I usually say, this is really a calling in of, of the community that's on this phone and also the larger community. But there's, there's a lot of, of white fragility involved in this idea that we want to be supportive um we want we too want to see an end in police violence but we don't want to center black voices black lives and we don't want the conversation to be overrun by the significance of black people and i really think that you know, in terms of developing a, lib a liberatory consciousness, and I hope folks, um, you know, take a look at Dr. Barbara Love's work on developing a liberatory consciousness. Um, we've got a lot of work to do um, as, a, as a community, a broader interracial community, but also folks who identify as white Americans and have, have actually received many of the privileges that this country um, has freely given to folks who identify as white Americans. There is nothing that you need to fear in terms of having, you know, a, a conversation or a movement that is largely led by black folks. It is, it is not an assault or an affront to white people that the term Black Lives Matter is used and why we are okay with allowing and centering white lives and that being okay to represent the broad cross-section of what we are as Americans for hundreds 
hundreds of years, but why the alternative isn't okay for a, a, a slogan or a terminology or the definition of a movement to, be, to center black lives, why that can't be representative of a larger group of people being, um, you know, of diverse ethnic and ethnic and racial backgrounds is deeply problematic. White folks shouldn't feel put off in those ways. And, and, and in no way is the Black Lives Matter movement saying that white lives are not also significant and that the loss of white life at the hands of police isn't significant. We've got to investigate that knee-jerk reaction that white folks feel and that others feel with this terminology and with this language and why we feel so scared and afraid of, of leadership, you know, in terms of, you know, black lives, centering black lives, centering black thought. And, you know, I think we just have a lot of work to do in that respect. And I do, and I don't think that we should just be okay. Like I want to challenge folks to not just be okay with saying, well, it's their movement, you know, and it doesn't include us. That's, that's absolutely not true. And if folks feel like saying, and white lives matter also, and Latino lives matter also, do all of that, you know, internal work, like, you know, and, and, and say, call it whatever you want. But at the end of the day, we know that black lives haven't mattered, that black lives were three fifths of lives at the founding of this country, and that black lives are largely still under attack on a daily basis. And that if we don't develop safeguards and protect to ensure that that doesn't happen, none of us can be free. And so that is really like, that's a consciousness building thing that we have to do together. And I hope that folks are going to be willing to, to do that. I think that's all fair. And, you know, I think the way you described it is, is a way that I tend to, tend to be attracted to. What I've seen is when folks, you know, post in addition to a video of George Floyd being murdered, a, a video of a, of a white person being killed in the same way to say this is a, a, an issue across our whole American community, there is often a mob that descends on that person that automatically assumes that they're a racist. You look on Twitter and these are happening all the time. So I think the, 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 the well-intentioned focus that you have um, may not be representative of a lot of the people that, you know, folks who want to be involved in criminal justice are experiencing. And thus it says, you know what? You know, people are saying that this is an all-inclusive movement that doesn't involve our whole community. But what I'm seeing from the reaction is, you know what, it, it is only about one particular part of our community. And, you know, that's where I have a challenge in, in engaging on this is because I know there are good-natured people like you who want to bring and build coalitions. And there are others who, you know, aren't willing to bring those other voices and perspectives in. And that, that can drive people away. I think we see it all the time in politics. And this is an area where, I mean, the evidence is clear that there, reforms need to be done. Um, but the way that it's, it's engaged sometimes can, can push people away in non-productive ways. Um, and it's not about fear of like being a reactive white person. It's just trying to engage in a, in a well-intentioned way and saying, you know what, you're right. There are black lives that have been harmed. And in the current moment, there are white lives being harmed. Let's solve that for both of us. And then being rejected out of hand for not having a, a broader view. You know, I see that happen to my peers all the time, folks who would be actively engaged. And they just choose to disengage because it's not worth their time or effort. Um, and, you know, to me, that's frustrating because the movement doesn't move forward. But I wonder if there's a way to, to bring this together so that both of our needs are met here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I have to say that I don't spend a lot of time on, you know, on social media and with those, you know, with, with, with the internets in that way, because I think it can be really, really problematic. You know, it can be, you know, a lot, a lot of folks are doing, you know, all of this like performative behavior on social media. They're doing all kinds of, you know, performative posting and there's all this like inauthentic wokeness going on in the community. And there, and there are lots of ways that I think that becomes really dangerous on, in online platforms. I think what my recommendation would be is that while you can really get your news and engage with people on social media and on the internet, I would really encourage the work to happen on a personal level. And for, well, you know, for folks who really do want to engage on this subject matter, that they should actually spend time in conversation 
and building, you know, really strong relationships with people, um, you know, in, for example, in the Movement for Black Lives or, for example, at the ACLU or other nonprofit organizations that are doing this work. I, the one thing that I want to say is that, you know, everybody on this phone call and lots of the other folks that, you know, represent our family and community members are really, when we're fired up about something and we, we care deeply about something, we're going to go the extra mile and to research what we need to research and push, push through. I mean, if you look at even, you know, the way that we talk about, you know, resilience and building resilience, when you're trying to build a business, you realize things don't happen right away. You're not going to actually be successful right at the outset. And I really would kind of challenge and, and empower folks who identify as white to, if you really actually want to see change on this subject, don't just reach out to just one black person and, 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 and make a post or ask to be invited to a conversation. And if you don't, you know, if you're not welcomed into the conversation, just give up, you know, that that's performative. If you actually really want to do the work, start with establishing real relationships with people who are doing the work. And if you're really committed to actually seeing change, like that's something that has to happen over time. Like these relationships don't, you know, they don't just come um, from making social media posts or even from even having conversations like this, to be very frank with you. This is a start but this is very surface, you know, we, we have to do a lot deeper work together. And I, 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 again, come back to this concept of fragility on both sides, but mostly white fragility in that if you're not included in the conversation at the outset, or you're told, listen, now is not the right time for you to be centering the fact that your life is also very important because generally, the universal premise of this culture and this society is a is that white people are incredibly valuable and that white lives matter and that protecting white children is very important and that ensuring white economic prosperity is very important and all of our systems and all of our policies are geared toward ensuring and protecting those core values. So the fact that that isn't the case for black people really makes black people feel like, can we just have a moment to recognize what's happening to black lives and the fact that, guess what? If we center you in the conversation right now, oh, and we allow this to become, you know, about the fact that white people are being killed, although that is a very important point, we will still have a system of policing that largely continues to kill black people and we, would, and we might even solve the issue for white people. Because that's what we do as a society. White people experience an issue of, of mass uh, substance abuse. We decide to deem it a, a public health crisis and call it, the, uh, call it an epidemic and start giving people opportunities to be treated in our healthcare system. That's what happens when we center white folks in a conversation about substance abuse. What we did to black folks when they experienced substance abuse issues through crack and cocaine is we just locked them up. And so... The reason why there's pushback is because this is a system designed to protect and insulate white lives and to ensure their prosperity. And, and does it also fail you sometimes? Yes, it does. But if we center that, you know, we center the loss of white life or we, we allow the conversation to shift to protecting white people, then we lose the, the focus on black lives and we go back to business as usual. And if we go back to business as usual, we're, we're in a state where, you know, we're just in a, in a place where we're not safe and we're not going to be safe. And so it's very, it's a very nuanced argument. And that's why I say it can't just be a one-off conversation. It can't be something that happens on the internet. It has to happen in deep relationship. It has to happen in community. And it has to be, there has to be a commitment, a reciprocal commitment from white people to also say, if nothing changes, if we actually can't see that our rights are actually bound up with your rights and actually allow the leadership to come from a group that has been so marginalized and so disfavored, that we actually are not going to get to a better place. And so I, I really think that, again, I, I feel really, I feel badly because I feel like I'm not fully, you know, answering your questions, but I actually think we have, to, there's, there's a lot of work that we have to do and it requires, um, I think a lot of vulnerability. I think it requires a lot of courage. 
And I think it requires some checking of privilege and checking of fragility that has really been a hallmark of the way that um, majority communities have operated for a really long time. Well, I can sense your passion. I know you're a great advocate for many underprivileged folks. Alana, we're at the end of our time, unfortunately. This has been an amazing conversation. I just want to thank you for being open and honest and vulnerable with us tonight. Um, And I know many people on this line, including myself, have grown because of it. And I hope we can continue that. I mean, to your point, this is not just a one-off conversation, you know, and through through groups like PLS and others, I think many of us have, have, have tried to engage in those hard conversations, in those relationships, and it's, it's, a, it's a decades-long journey. But Alana, thank you so much for your time. We're very grateful you spent the time with us this evening. Yeah, I'm super grateful for the time with you and hoping to continue the work with everyone. Absolutely. All right, folks, have a great night. We'll chat to you soon. Bye-bye.